You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. As we look at Scripture together, we find ourselves in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and we are going to pick up in verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. Your word is... It's truth, it's good, gives us hope. In it we see the we see Jesus. Lord, and I pray that as we go throughout our text this morning and we talk about it, I pray that we would see Jesus a bit more clearly. Lord, as we talk about emotion, as we talk about passions. As we talk about Jesus being moved and weeping, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand how Jesus cares for us in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we pray that you would answer these requests and much, much more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the Alps, there is a historic mountain range, mountain pass. It is called uh, the St. Bernard Pass. In that area, there is a hostel that is run by monks where people can come and and stay. And there they keep St. Bernard dogs. I know you were wondering based on the name of the pass. Yes, they do. In the winter, in the Alps, the weather can be horrific. In fact, when it is snowing, there are times in which you can't see the, the path in the pass and you, you can't find your way to the, the hostel. So what the monks would do is they would ring a bell and they would do this so that travelers would be able to follow the sound of the bell to the hostel to find a place to stay. Of course, Life is like this. There are times in which there are 
uh, great sorrows, there are great trials and afflictions, even times of great excitement. It doesn't just have to be grief. But there are other things as well. But my point is that there are times in life where things get clouded. And they cloud the way. It's difficult to see the, the path forward. The fact is, whether it's an emotionally charged discernment issue or you are facing the death of a loved one like Martha and Mary, we often need that bell. Just walking through the, the busyness of life, we need to continually hear the, the bell of the gospel ring, leading us back to rest in Christ Jesus. And in this text, we see this really played out. How Jesus masterfully ministered uh, to Martha last time. And now he, he is calling Mary to himself. Remember, Martha goes out to meet Jesus. She apparently goes to him before he even enters the town. He doesn't even make it into town. She goes there. She meets him. Then she runs back to Mary in the house. And in a private moment, she says, the teacher is here and is calling for you. I think it's important to notice the difference between these two women. Both were wondering where Jesus had been. The conversations were much the same. The reason for his delay is something that they kept asking each other about. Both were frustrated in their grief. Both handled the news of Jesus' arrival in different ways. Martha runs out to meet him. and Mary stays back. Now, you can almost put yourself in the place of one of these two ladies here and determine which one you are more like. Some people in their frustration would, would stay back. I mean, why should I act like I'm excited or eager to see him when he didn't bother enough to come to me right away when he knew I needed him? We might say something like that. There was a, a level of frustration here, and I, and I think that is normal. For some to sit back. Martha though she wasn't like that. She was frustrated with Jesus. But yet she showed it out on the road. And she said if he hadn't been there her brother. If he had been there her brother would have, would have died. But she was eager to see him in the midst of all the frustration. And some of us are more like that. We go to him quickly. Two different women. And it's interesting to see how these sisters are also very much the same. They are deeply affected by the death of their brother. It isn't as if one of these sisters cared less. Both greatly cared. Both were deeply in the throes of grief. But they handled things differently. And I'm sure many of us can understand this. You've seen firsthand how different people deal with grief. It isn't that they are not grieving. They just handle things very differently. Now, something else here. It, it isn't as if Mary didn't care about Jesus. We know that she loves Jesus. She was very devoted to Jesus. She sits at his feet. But when she didn't go right away, 
Martha goes back to Mary and, he, and, he meets Mary, and she meets Mary in, in private. And she says, the teacher is here. He's calling for you. Notice that was kind of like a bell. In the midst of her grief, in the midst of the throes of her frustration, she hears these words. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And what was her response? It's interesting. Her response was to to get up and quickly to, to run to him. It's interesting to me that Mark notes that Martha talked to her sister in private meeting that there were several mourners there in her house and and Martha didn't want the the mourners to hear the conversation. At least that's what we can gather. Now, some have made a a big deal about this. They they surmised that, well, these women, they they didn't want to put Jesus' life in danger. They were actually just thinking about Jesus and all of this. They didn't want to advertise that he was there, that he was in the area because they knew that the Jews in the area were hostile toward him, that he's had, they wanted to stone him before and all of that. But I don't think that really makes sense. I don't think these women were thinking about that. I think that that these women, they they sent for Jesus, and it's obvious that their hope was that when Jesus arrived, when Lazarus was ill, that he would have healed him. Now, that news would have spread. It would have caused people to, to look at Jesus, and it would have brought up a lot of other things. The women weren't thinking about protecting Jesus in the midst of their sorrow. I think the best way to understand this is that these ladies respected privacy. But in the end, it really didn't matter much because we are told that the Jews that were in the house saw that she left quickly and they followed her. They assumed that she was going to the tomb and they wanted to go to the tomb because they wanted to console her at the tomb. Mary, too, like her sister, was overcome by grief. We see that even the the thoughtful those who sit at the feet of Jesus, even these, their minds can be in, like we said last week, theological shadows. Because she says the same thing to Jesus as her sister did. It's interesting that, that both sisters come to him and it happened differently, but both of these sisters say much the same thing. Now, again, some say that Mary gives the impression here of just a, a complaining woman. She didn't go to Jesus right away because of her complaining spirit. And then the the first thing she does when she gets there is she complains that Jesus didn't come sooner. Martha, if you remember, she said the same thing, but then she affirmed her faith in Jesus right away after she said those words. She affirmed that Jesus had a unique relationship with the Father, that God would, would answer his prayer. She trusted him. Here with Mary, we're not told what else she said or if she said anything else. And therefore, some are a bit skeptical here and suggest that she just comes across as a complainer. I want us to remember, though, and not get caught up on some of these things. We need to remember the the context of Mary's statement. Her brother had been sick. He died. The only one that she knew for a fact could heal him, delayed in his coming. She had thought that he really had cared for the family. She thought that their relationship was much deeper than a majority of the people that Jesus healed. But yet he didn't come when he was told about Lazarus's illness. Remember, they sent word to Jesus and they didn't give Jesus permission to come. They didn't uh, go to Jesus and they didn't ask him if he would come. 
There was just an assumption there that Jesus would come when he found out that Lazarus was ill because he cared so much for the family. They assumed that. But Jesus delayed. And now Lazarus has been dead for days. He was even in the tomb already. Now, what is evident here is something that isn't explicitly said, but that is that Mary, by the time she met Jesus and by the time she got these words out of her mouth, she was crying, she was weeping. I think we can safely say this. It's possible, though, that Jesus and Mary visited more on the road, like between verses 32 and 33. We could say, well, maybe there's a break there and And during the course of that conversation, then she started to cry. I mean, I suppose theoretically that could be uh, correct. I I would suggest, and I think this is rather clear in Mark's point here, is that Mary's statement should be looked at, or it shouldn't be looked at like she was uh, charging Jesus with any wrongdoing. She wasn't rebuking him. She wasn't, uh, this wasn't her complaining character coming out in the moment, but she was just overcome by grief. She she's, gets to him and she's, in, she's already in tears. She's crying and she gets these words out and she's, she's, just, she's just sobbing. I think Mark makes that point rather clear. Now, we saw this last week with Martha, and even though these ladies are very different, they still are grieving. That's not an excuse. We're not excusing bad behavior. If she was wrong in the moment, she should be called on it. It should be noted. After all, it is possible in our grief to still sin. People do it all the time. Last week, We differentiated Martha's grief-laden statement from one of rebuke and said that the word rebuke really wasn't the right word there. But having said that, we must remember that it is still possible to sin in these kind of moments. And there are people that do charge God with wrongdoing when it comes to the death of a loved one or some other trial that comes into their lives. There are people that complain when difficult times come into their lives. And I would guess we all know these kinds of people. Yes, there was a really, really bad, hard thing that they had to walk through. But they let that experience shape them. They they never got past it. And every opportunity that they get, they complain about it. And as they talk about it, and they don't even have to say it explicitly, but they give the impression that God really messed up. That they have a reason to complain and hold God accountable for his actions. In essence, they're saying God was wrong. My friends, that is sinful. And that is not what we're talking about here. Mark, though, is making it clear that Mary is weeping when she is saying these things. She's in tears. Her mind is in theological shadows. To discern anything else about the situation is only speculation. But when Jesus sees her weeping, as she approached him, and as she spoke to him, notice something. Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't call her on her 
her statement, her bad theology. He doesn't say, Mary, trust me. Don't you believe? He handles Mary differently than he does her sister. They say, they say the same thing. Remember, he gave Martha theology in the moment. He says, your brother will rise again. At that moment, that's what Martha needed. She needed good theology. And I'm not suggesting that Mary doesn't need good theology. She does. And she's going to get it just in a different way. In the miracle that's about to take place, Jesus is doing all of this to point her and others to the, to the resurrection, to the hope of the Christian life. She's going to get good theology when it comes to the resurrection. But right in this moment, what Mary needed is not only somebody to listen to her, but she needed to know that Jesus cared for her. When Jesus saw her weeping, we read, And the Jews who had come with her were also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now that's an interesting verse. And it has to do with with passions when it comes to God. Emotions when it comes to God are an interesting subject. Right? The emotional life of God. And and I'm going to be honest with you. It's it's difficult. Because there, there are passages that tell us that God gets angry. We know at one point that God wished that he wouldn't have created humanity because they were so evil. There are passages that speak of God having emotion. Now I'm going I'm to say that emotion probably isn't the best word and I'm going to tell you why uh, in, a, in a bit, but for now we're going to use it just because. But do, do you see the, the problem that some of this could cause. If God is emotional and his actions are based on his emotions, like ours are, that seems like there could be a problem, don't you think? I mean, I act on my emotions. I have a, I had a child do something more than once that, that made me angry. I got It really set me off. I handled the situation and then later on I had to come and And I reflected on things and I realized that I shouldn't have handled things that way. I should have handled things a lot differently. In fact, I had to go to my kids and ask for a do-over. Right? Using our text as as an example, we said that Martha's mind was in the theological shadows because she was overwhelmed by grief. Well, if it could be in that moment, could it be in that moment that because of because she was so overwhelmed by grief that she could make poor choices and do things that she would come to later regret? People do things like that all the time, don't they? My dad says that when we start to take things personally, we get emotional, and when we get emotional, we make poor choices. It's pretty true, isn't it? It, When we become overwhelmed in our emotional state, we make... Or choices. Do you think that God ever gets angry and regrets his actions? Let me just take you to one place. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I'll start in verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. 
In other words, the ark was falling. It was going to hit the ground. He reaches out. He grabs it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Puriz Uzzah to this day. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Here this poor guy just reaches out to the ark as it was going to fall. And we are told that for this crime, the anger of the Lord burned against him and God struck him down. We also learned that David was angry because of the Lord's outburst. That's how it words it. The word outburst is interesting there, isn't it? You think God regretted that later? I mean, the question is, is how are we to take this? Is God at times emotionally unstable? I mean, I think we know the answer to that. We know that the correct answer is no. No, God is not emotionally unstable, but it does sound like it in some places when we read the scriptures. There are other places, though, that say that explicitly that the answer to that question is no. Listen to Second Samuel or First Samuel fifteen twenty nine, just for one example. And all the glory of Israel, this is God, will not lie or have regret. God does not regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Again, God is not like man that he should lie or change his mind. In the New Testament, James chapter 1 verse 17, we read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's interesting, isn't it? No variation. He does not change. How do we take these passages that are very clear? God will not lie. He will not have regret. He does not change his mind. There's no variation in who he is. In other words, outside things that happen don't change him. A guy reaching out to grab an ark because it's going to fall. That doesn't change who God is fundamentally at all. So how do we come to to passages about Uzzah where it seems that God emotionally flies off the handle and strikes him dead in an outburst? In our mind, that seems pretty heavy-handed. We need to understand, we need to realize something. And that is that Uzzah and others knew that they were not to touch the ark as they could defile it because human beings are sinners. And Uzzah made a a grave mistake. He thought that the mud of the earth would corrupt the ark more than his own sinfulness would. It was the classic error of thinking or assuming that we know best, that we know more than God does. We don't. Now, we also must understand that what happened in that passage, God taking his life from him, from our perspective, seems extremely harsh, like something that that we would do if we were overcome by emotions in a given situation. 
The language of the Bible is often anthropomorphic. It's a big word. It simply means that in order for us to understand the situation, there must be human characteristics ascribed to God. It's a a common literary device that's used all throughout Scripture, not only about God's emotions, but there are times in which we are told things like God stretched out his hand. We understand that God does not literally stretch out his hand because God is a spirit. He doesn't have hands. But it's a literary device to help us understand what is happening. And I I think that we would all admit that God is different than we are. And if we start thinking about him in human terms, that would be a mistake. If we start ascribing to him the emotional well-being that exists in human beings, the, the line would soon be crossed. It almost sounds like in our text that Jesus was so deeply moved in his spirit at the given time when he saw these people crying, that he was so moved that in that moment, because of that situation, he said, where did you lay him? And he went to the tomb and then he raised him. All because it was just this emotional driven moment. He raised Lazarus because he was overcome by emotion. Is that the right way to understand this? Let me read it again. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Let me skip a little. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take up the stone. Up to that point, Anyway, we see a very emotional Jesus. And the question before us is, is emotion driving Jesus as it would drive you and I? Is he being led here by his emotions? I mean, we've seen this with both Mary and Martha, that their grief shaped their decisions, their emotional health in the, in the moment. Has Jesus been moved by his emotions in the same way, yet without sin? Actually, I don't don't really want to get into this, but there's an interesting discussion happening uh, right now on social media about emotions when it comes to the the revival in Asbury. Some Some are very critical of the emotionalism. Others are welcoming it. One of the the questions that has been raised, actually there's been a lot of good questions that have been raised, and, and that is, should emotionalism take the driver's seat? How much can emotions drive us in a situation and still be healthy? Can truth be determined by what we feel? How much should we trust our emotions? I feel like the Holy Spirit is in this place. Does that mean that he is? Right? I'm not commenting on the validity of what's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky, but I am bringing up some of the questions that people are asking, and these are the kinds of questions that we need to ask. And we ask them as we look at this situation in Luke chapter 11 when it comes to Jesus, because if Jesus was affected by emotions like we are, that would change things a little bit. Now, 
I think everyone understands that emotions are a good thing. But at the same time, our emotions, in some instances, definitely lead us astray. I mean, we could go on and on about this. People get divorced all the time because they don't feel like they're in love anymore. They don't have the emotional high like they used to. One emotional outburst in a moment could lead to a person being imprisoned for a long time for manslaughter. I read a story not long ago about a man who was serving a a lot of time in prison because he got mad, punched another guy out. That person fell and hit his head and died. Emotional outbursts ruin friendships. That's commonplace. The list goes on and on. The flip side of it all is emotions are a very good thing. Some of the best memories that we have in life are tied to our emotions. A first-time mother telling the father that he's going to be a father. That's not just good news. That's incredibly emotional. And it's not bad. A marriage proposal, the wedding itself, these things are wonderful things and they're all very emotional. And God created us to be emotional. But what we need to be really careful of is when we start saying that God has emotions like we do. We know that isn't the case, but yet our understanding of emotions are solely based on our own experience. We're shaped by our emotions. We can't get away from it. We make emotional decisions all the time. And we can't treat God that way, can we? Now, in theology, we've used a word to talk about this subject. And we say that God is impassable. Samuel Renahan defines divine impassibility. It's a a big word, but I think you can grasp it. He defines it like this. God does not experience emotional changes. That's a key word, changes. He's not changed by emotion. Either from within himself or affected by his relationship to creation. I think that's a super definition. I'll, I'll comment on it in a minute. I think it's important to affirm that the 1689 London Baptist Confession says it this way. The Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. Infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended but by any but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. So what Renahan is saying is that the things that happen in the created world do not cause God to change or to have emotional changes. Nor do these things change him in any way. I mean, we could point to the first chapter of the Bible on this subject. And everything that comes after that. But there's a, there's a creator-creation distinction. God affects creation, but it doesn't change who God is. God is unchanging. And to say that, that the created world changes God in any respect is dangerous. 
The confession uses some interesting words. God is infinite in being, in perfection. God is all that he is. He is perfect. That's important. We cannot comprehend him. That's important. It is also important that it affirms that he is invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Notice the confession there says he's without passions. Now there's those that take exception to this. They will say something like, well, wait a minute. Jesus wept. Sounds like God had passion to me. I think that most people deny this doctrine because they don't really understand it. First, let let me just define what we mean by some of these terms. It's important to be on the same page and understand what we mean when we say that when we say that when we say these things. First of all, we need to understand that God created us people in parts, right? A body, a soul. But the Bible speaks of more parts that make us up as well. Our heart, our will, our mind, our affections. So the the question then is, what are affections? William Bridge defines affections this way. He says, affections in the general are the movings of the rational soul, whereby the heart is sensibly carried out upon good or evil, so as to embrace one or the other or refuse one or the other. Notice something about the definition. Notice that the whole person is involved here. All the parts are involved. In other words, affections are how people encounter things. How they evaluate things as good or bad and then choose between the two. It isn't just how one acts, but it is why. It's what drives their decision. You see how emotions, that's not a, I don't think that's a great word. I think affections is a better word, but it's what stirs them. It's what moves them. Why do you choose one thing over another? What stirs you? Why did you choose the spouse that you chose? There was something in you that that chose, that evaluated, right? Lots of different things were going on, but ultimately you chose that person. Renahan says that affections are the, the motions of the soul worked out through the body. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty simple in a sense, right? We, how do we make decisions? Because what our affections come into play, it's what we desire, right? Even the, the choice of food that you choose. Well, not today, you're going to have a potato. But I'm sure that everybody is hankering for a, a loaded baked potato because you're, you're moved in your, your spirit, you're evaluating. There's all of these things that, that go on. And, and now you're thinking about which one am I going to choose? It's affections. Passions. Some say passions are, are the same thing as affections. They're used interchangeably. Some people treat them differently. For example, where love is an affection, lust would be a passion. Anger is an affection, but rage is a passion. To be sad is an affection, but to be overwhelmed by grief is passion. Actually, we use kind of the, um, the, the language we used here. We, we spoke of Mary and Martha, right? They were, they were not only sad, but they, they, they were overwhelmed by grief. So that the passion is an intensified affection. And when it comes to, to passions, there's a, there's a loss of control. She was in theological shadows. One can be angry, but still in control. But in a fit of rage, right? You, you lose control. That's defined rage. 
That's a passion. So I think it's helpful to to separate the two. We have affections. And sometimes those things let go and they control us. Now the, the Bible attributes some human characteristics to God. Right? This is anthropomorphic language. It's a a literary device. So the Bible does attribute uh, affections and passions to God when we think of God. But when we think of, of God and who he is, we need to understand that what we're not seeing is passions or affections like they exist in us. Those things exist within human beings. Those are literary devices to help us to understand what God is like. But what we are seeing in God is unchanging perfection. That's how Samuel Renahan puts it. So mercy in God is not like our mercy. Our mercy is a movement of the heart, a decision based on the fact that we have somehow deemed it worthy. But that's not how God works. That's who God is. He's merciful. That's who he is. That's an unchanging perfection of God. God helps the helpless. That's who he is in his perfection. And that is a perfection of God that does not change. So, what does all of this have to do with our text? Because first of all, Jesus is human here. But he is also perfectly God, right? God taking on humanity does no way diminish his godness. So when he is moved in his spirit... That is happening in his humanity. Jesus is human. He's completely, perfectly human. As we are human, but we have to understand that he's perfectly human. And what we see here is a God truly and perfectly caring for his own. I want you to to see, I wanted you to see some of the theology behind all of this because It's easy to look at this portion of scripture when it tells us that Jesus was moved in his spirit and we just chalk all of this up to his humanity and we move on. He's human and moved in his spirit like we're moved in our spirit. And we move on because Jesus is human. But in his humanity, he is moved, but he's perfectly moved. And that is something that needs to be made clear here. This is a display not of passion, it's not God being moved like we are moved in un, in un, in control of his action. It's God acting based on who God is in his perfection, not moved by passion. Does that make sense? Jesus cared about these women. He cared about Lazarus. And what we learn here is that Jesus, God, cares for you perfectly. Not only because he's stirred in the moment. God doesn't love you because he's stirred in the moment. He loves you because that's who he is. He's your father. I I want you to know that there are times in our lives in which God seems absent. For a little while he was absent with these ladies. And they didn't understand it. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus perfectly loves us. We are his children. And it's in him that we find rest and sustenance. It's interesting that Jesus called for Mary and what he did for her is he showed her compassion. But not just compassion because he was moved in the moment. 
not just because it was a reaction to a sad situation, like everybody else that was weeping there, going to the tomb and what they were doing, but Jesus' compassion and his sympathy in that situation was perfect. And that is how Jesus cares for his own. Cares for us perfectly because that's who he is. It's based on who he is. His effect, his, his perfect attributes. Now the author of Hebrews says something very interesting in Hebrews chapter 4. We are told that he is a great high priest. He's the great mediator between God and us. He lives to make intercession for us. That he sympathizes with our weakness. That because of this, that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy and, and help in the time of need. And what I'm saying is that whatever struggle you find yourself in, it's a mistake to think that you're on your own. Because we might think, well, maybe God isn't moved to care for us. Maybe God isn't moved to love us. Maybe he's moved elsewhere. But what we learn here is that Jesus cares for you perfectly, just like he did Mary. The author of Hebrews not only says that he sympathizes with our weakness, but also says that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in the time of need. In other words, he doesn't just tell us that he, he gets it and then give us a, a proverbial pat on the back and sell us to keep our chin up. But we can go to him in our grief, with our struggles, with our weaknesses, and we can find grace and mercy in the time of need. If we need him, he's there because that's who he is. He's mercy, that's the perfection of God. Not just a movement, not a passion of God. It's like that bell that we talked about at the start. It's like Jesus is always ringing that bell, calling us to himself, saying, I get it, I'm there, come to me. When we're getting caught up in the storms of life, whatever trial it is that you face, Jesus is calling you to himself to find grace and mercy because he perfectly cares for you. Did you see that the distinction there? He perfectly cares for you because that's who he is. He doesn't care for you just because he's moved in the moment, because something changed him fundamentally. But that's who he is, the God that cares, the God that loves perfectly. The God that shows mercy perfectly. The God that helps us in our weakness perfectly. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.